welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> all right, welcome back, everybody. You're here with myself, Dean, my lovely partner, Liz, in crime and in business, and then we're joined by the... The very special man, Greg Knuckles, today, mate. Thanks for joining us on uh, the Flexus podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. What uh, what what kind of crime? What kind? You of said crime? partner in crime and ah, business. We yeah. run the business together, and also she's now my my W is what I'll call her because Liz has an issue with the word wife. Ew. But he's saying, what crimes do we commit well, together, Dean? Right. Yeah. Sorry, it's a little early in the morning yet. I missed it, and I'm only just halfway through my coffee. <laughs> Um, crimes against humanity. No, we don't do those either. No, no, terrible. I'm not the creative one of the two, Greg. You'll soon realize that Liz will come up with funny answers and I'm just the, the boring one. No, I mean, fair enough. Like we're two minutes into this discussion and I feel like it's already taking place under false pretext, but, uh, you know, let, let's just forge ahead and see what happens. Now, Greg, you are so many things. Um, you are a drug-free powerlifter. You're the co-host of Stronger by Science, one of three minds behind Matt's, and also a fitness writer. Have I one missed of, anything? One of four minds. Oh, my bad. Yeah, we brought uh, Eric, Eric Trexler on approximately a year ago. So there's, there's four of us now. We are multiplying. Great. That's cool. awesome. Making babies. I love it. Did, did, is there anything to add to the list, or did I cover it all? Uh, no, I, I, I feel like that's sufficient. <laughs> you are such a humble man. We've had um, some awesome people on the podcast and I feel like the more awesome people are, the more humble and generous with their time they get. At, at, least, at least with the people that we self-select. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> it can certainly go the other way, but we choose people that we obviously appreciate the content <laughs> and personalities for. Um, more specifically, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, although we probably should not have been this podcast, is that uh, Greg, you've just put some uh, beef on the stove and I have a, a great liking to your food discussion on all of your oh, podcast appearances. So I'm sure we'll tap into it at some point. Liz and I actually, no, 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 let's start on food before we ask Greg a little bit more about himself. We had um, my first experience of a Umai dry aged uh, rib fillet last night. We did. Oh, nice. How was it? It was actually really good. I lost way too much meat to the dry aging process because it was a thin rib fillet and it didn't, it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't round enough, but um, mm-hmm. you know. Have you tried them before Greg? Um, so I, I don't do any dry aging at home. I'm actually going to soon. Um, we, we currently rent the place we're in, but we're planning on buying a house in the near future. Um, so the current place we're in doesn't have room for like a second fridge and our fridge is always full. Um, but I want, I want to get like a second fridge that can, you know, just go some random place, uh, that I can use for, for like fermentation projects and like dry aging. Um, so I have had dry aged meat, but I have never made it myself. Yeah. Uh, but that is, that is definitely something I'm interested in doing soon. I'd like to hear your reviews because I really struggle to describe it. Dean described it as funky yeah, tasting. I, I, I don't know if, but not in a bad way. I described it as dry, but not in a bad way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm also just being biased by the language of the videos in which I've watched, you know? Because yeah. it's funky, funky and like blue cheesy yeah. are the are the two terms that most people use to describe it. Yeah, it just had a, it had an interesting flavor and it cooked very differently. 
on I only, only pan fry, uh, pan seared it, but it cooked super differently to normal steak. Um, mm. In case our listeners are just uh, potato and chicken people and are bored by this discussion, let's get back to lifting. So as a three-time <laughs> all-time record holder for powerlifting, I understand that you have some PRs that you want to achieve in powerlifting before you move across to strongman. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, we'll just see. Uh, the The numbers that I've kind of had in mind that I've wanted to do for a long, long time are squat and deadlift 800, which what's that like 363 mm-hmm. um, and bench 500, which is 227, 228. I reps. think it's a lot <laughs> is the number. <laughs> um, the so yeah, th- those are, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but th- those are the numbers that I've, uh, that I've had in the back of my mind for, for a long, long time. Um, the, the, the more I train, the more I think that like the squat and bench will probably be doable. Um, you know, we'll see about the deadlift, but if I give strongman a shot, like deadlifting is a huge part of that sport anyway. So, you know, I, I can keep hopefully improving my deadlift there. Um, yeah, that's, that's, those are numbers that, that I've kind of been fixated on for a long time. Yeah. Cool. What's the seduction in strongman? Uh, (laughs) I get bored easily and uh, there's not that much to powerlifting. No, there's three lifts. Um, and I've been doing those three lifts a lot for how old, how old am I? For like 14, 15 years at this point. Um, and, you know, you just do a, a bunch of other stuff in strongman. Um, there's, a, there's more variety to the sport. Uh, I feel like there's more strategy to it, um, and it it tests a, a wider array of of physical capabilities. So you know it's not just static strength for for one lift. Like there's moving events, there's rep events. Um, so yeah, it just seems like a a more dynamic sport, I guess. Um, and I've been powerlifting for a long time, just ready for a change. Yeah, fair mm-hmm. enough. Dean and I gave Strongman a shot. Uh, two, three years ago now? Uh, I trained it once a week for fun within a group setting. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't enough. say I tried it, but it's brutal, man. Like mm-hmm. some of the stuff I'm just like, that ain't for me. Like I, I come from a background of being a little whippy, minuscule soccer player mm-hmm. and having that amount of load and trying to run with it on my body, just I just wasn't ready for it. <laughs> I yeah. thought it was a lot of fun, yeah. but we only have one good strongman gym here in the Gold Coast where we live in Australia. What's it like mm-hmm. there for you? So, um, <laughs> well, so currently, you know, coronavirus is going on, so we're just working out in our garage, um, and we don't have strongman equipment in our garage. The gym that I trained at before everything shut down, Spider Strength Gym, um, the guy who runs it is a, a really good 105 kilo strongman. Um, and so it has, it has most strongman implements that one would want. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. We need more here on the Gold Coast. The one's not enough. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's a really cool, uh, interesting accumulation of varying exercises and types of exercise too. Yeah. No, it's fun. A lot of fun, hard to get bored. Um, I also understand that you are currently in a cut. Is that right? Um, so, so I was. Uh, I'm down around like 35, 40 pounds from where I started. Nice. Um, as soon as the coronavirus stuff started ramping up, 
Um, I shifted back into maintenance. So I haven't regained anything. Pretty happy about that. Um, so I, <laughs> I actually have like reasonably serious respiratory problems. Um, just always have, not worth getting into. Um, but yeah, since it's a respiratory illness, like I'm reasonably concerned about it. Uh, even though I am like in theory pretty young and healthy. Uh, if, if anything happens to my lungs, like I'm probably toast. Uh, and in terms of like the effects of, of like calorie intake on, uh, immune function, I would probably be all right in like a very, very minor deficit. Um, but any sort of like significant calorie deficit dampens immune function to some degree. Um, so I figured like, you know, until this passes over, like I'm just going to chill out at maintenance and restart where I was like wh where I left off once, uh, once the risk has started dropping. Mm. What sort of variants were you, uh, in place from deficit to now maintenance from a calorie perspective? Uh, I eat lunch again. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. Okay. An extra meal. And how have you yeah. found the maintenance process? Are you struggling with hunger now that you're at a new maintenance? No, not really. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I think one of the reasons that I have always struggled with my weight is just my, uh, like hunger and satiety signals aren't very robust in the first place. Um, so I, I never really get that hungry, but I also like never really feel that full. <sighs> um, which is, I, I think why, um, why just like skipping meals works pretty well. Cause if I skip lunch, I'm not any hungrier before dinner than I would have been otherwise. Um, hmm. so yeah, like I, I'm not good about being intentional about planning out meals and whatnot, but I kind of need to be cause otherwise I'll, I will just like naturally find myself overeating. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I never really feel that hungry or that full. So. Right. It's an interesting approach. I think I heard you speak about this on your podcast with Eric and that was uh, typically most people opt for the morning fast later in the day evening consumption approach, whereas you've kind of gone breakfast, skip the middle and then back into dinner at night time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And you found that manageable from both a like cognitive function point of view and also from a hunger point of view? Yeah, so I... Um, I, <laughs> I have like pretty bad ADD. And so, uh, when I, when I get to work, um, it takes like, it, it takes entirely too long to be able to like actually get focused and start being productive. Um, and so just in terms of like breaking up the flow of my workday, when I do stop and eat lunch, then it takes me like a while to get refocused again. And it's just, it's just wasted time. Um, but if I can get up and get some coffee and eat something, and then get to work and not have to think about getting up to do anything else for like the next eight to 10 hours. That is ideal for me. Mm. And yeah, that's, that's interesting. So what do you think about, um, so if I just quickly define highly palatable food for listeners who don't really understand, we're talking about really delicious food. That's usually, mm. that usually has a combination of carbohydrates and fats and people find it difficult to resist or engage in portion control. How have you found, because I know you're such a massive foodie, you only have to look at your Instagram to look at all the highlights and it's like mm -hmm. all food. Uh, how have you found being a big foodie and 
maintaining a cal calorie maintenance, not a surplus, uh, with such highly flavorful foods around? I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is, um, so one of the things I think I've struggled with before is um, I, and, and like, this isn't just me, like there's research backing this up. People who struggle with their weight more kind of on average tend to derive more pleasure from food than other people do. So it's kind of like, you know, jokes on everyone else. They're like, you're fat. And it's like, yeah, but like both of us eat three times a day and I enjoy it way more. So like, <laughs> who's, who's actually struggling here? Um, but yeah, so, so because of that, um, I find for me personally, and not talking about like hunger and satiety or anything like that, but just like the sheer just pleasure that I derive from eating. Um, if I'm eating stuff that is just better, um, I'm, I'm more satisfied after like a smaller portion. So, you know, it, it could be something that is more calorie dense, but I don't feel like I have to eat as much of it to, you know, fully enjoy the experience of it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a bunch of other people do that. Like I, I uh, like one of the reasons I don't talk about my approach to a lot of things that often is like, I, uh, I, I experiment a lot for myself and I've tried a lot of the things that like quote unquote should work theoretically. Um, and they've never really been all that successful for me, but you know, the, like the, the approach that I was taking to my cut, I don't think would be that successful for most people on average, but, uh, mm. it, it was getting the job done for me, you know? Yeah. If we talk about the average person, they have one nut and one boob. So like we, not everyone fits within that average. I personally, with my weight loss clients, like to experiment with some people need total abstinence from really delicious or highly platable food because they find mm -hmm. they just can't portion control. So we'll introduce those foods when they get back to maintenance or maybe a surplus in the future. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other people actually require... Um, small small bits of delicious food daily or twice a day to feel like they're not totally restricted and otherwise yeah. they, they tend to binge Ooh. so I think it's it's really worth experimenting to see what works for sure yeah and so I think one of the things for me as well is um since since I don't have like great hunger feedback uh and like fullness if I if, if I like meal prep a bunch of food that's like generally healthy then I find myself just like kind of mindlessly eating a lot of it. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't like click in that like, oh, hey, like you have grilled chicken breast, you should stop eating it. Cause it's like, ah, fuck, it's grilled chicken breast. Like how bad could it be? But then like, I will eat an enormous amount of it. Um, Cause like, you know, I'm, I'm just not thinking. Whereas if I make like a really good homemade pizza, you know, I know what's on that fucking pizza and like, I know I shouldn't eat that much of it. And so I'm not going to like mindlessly eat it the same way, you know, like I'll like, I know that I shouldn't eat a bunch of it. So I just don't. Um, and so it, it, I think forces me to be more cognizant of what, what I'm eating and how much I'm eating. Whereas I just tend to not be if I'm generally eating like quote unquote healthier food. 
Yeah. Mm. Do you think that that, like you said, this likely isn't necessarily something you would recommend to other people, but because you're consciously aware of both what is in the food and then also how you respond to food, that it is a, a good way for you to manage it because it does make you cognizant, like you said, of what's going on. Whereas an individual who has no idea what's in food and just knows that it tastes really delicious mm. likely doesn't have the opportunity to sort of pull back. Yeah, yeah, pr probably so. Um, yeah, that that would make sense. Yeah, <laughs> like 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 people eating nuts, for example, they're like it's healthy and it's got protein mm -hmm. in it, so I'll just eat a whole bowl of almonds. I love like, those protein oh, almonds. Goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or protein balls that are really just made from like dried fruit and nuts. So like, where's the protein, man? <laughs> but unless you know about nutrition, you don't. You just you're reading the marketing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, Greg, you mentioned before that you like the approach you currently got in play with skipping lunch because it allows you just to hone into work, but it takes you some time to get into uh, effective research and work, which surprises mm -hmm. me because you're somebody who appears to have an incredible recall of information. Yeah. So uh, one thing that Liz and I were really keen to talk to you today about a little bit different to possibly what you normally would was how uh, and why you go about your study and your research so that you can have a better recall of information. So we're kind of looking for tips on that. Not just reading it, but really understanding yeah. it. Yeah. So uh, you're going to hate my answer. Um, <laughs> you're just good at it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, like I read things once and it generally just sticks. You're that awesome. that guy. <laughs> well, so what, it, what is important is I can't have any distractions. So if I'm, you know, if I'm like kind of glancing back and forth between one thing and the other, or like if I have music playing or like if I'm trying to read something and someone's like trying to have a conversation with me um, and I'm trying to like go back and forth between the two, like if, if I have any distractions whatsoever, it just doesn't stick. And then I have to go back and reread everything. Um, but if it's like perfectly quiet, I have nothing else I'm thinking about, like nothing else that's going on, then uh, yeah, I mean... I, I read stuff and it generally sticks pretty well. Okay. So do you have Greg time then in regards to your time for uh, research or reading in that what? people know that it's Greg's time and you don't talk to you and like leave you alone for a little bit of uh, like in the, in the quiet. <laughs> is that, is that a possible thing? Kind of. So, I mean, I, my wife and I both work from home and I'm not going to say like, there is a rule that you mustn't talk to me like between these hours. Uh, but like a, a couple of nights a week, I'll just like, like we'll work together through the day and then I'll just stay up after she goes to bed for anything I need to be like super focused on. Um, you know, and then no one's talking to me because no one else is awake. <laughs> Dean and I share uh, an office and we work together and yeah. he, he seems similar to you in the sense that like he can't have distractions. So if yeah. I really need to ask him a question, well, <clears throat> I'll, and I'll be like, can I ask you a question? He's like, no. <laughs> in, in five, five minutes, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so you and Dean share that in common I think so th this this could be complete bullshit because it's uh it, it's well outside my area of expertise but I believe there is actually research on uh like average capabilities for multitasking between males and females um and that females just tend to be considerably better at multitasking I mean, I, I see that with Lindsay as well. She can have like three things going on, um, keeping track of like all of them at once and performing well at all of it. 
I, I can't. Like, I can't even attempt to do that. Like, <laughs> if, if I'm doing one thing, I can do it really well. If I do two things, I'm going to be doing both of them poorly. And if I do, like, three plus things at the same time, like, they're all going to be a complete shit show. Like, I shouldn't attempt it, and when I do, I regret it. It's funny how much uh, stereotypes, you know, they come from somewhere. Because there's, there's the stereotype that males can't multitask, and it's quite true, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I'd be interested to see the research on that. I think it's almost content specific there for me. Like if it's all in front of me on a computer, I can kind of multitask mm. uh, through like multiple different sort of tabs. But mm -hmm. if it's like, if I'm here and there's something going on there, don't even bother. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't even do that. Like when I'm, um, so if I'm writing, I have to like, so I, I write in Google Docs. So I, I write online. Um, but I, I have to like open my Google Doc any window where I have no other tabs. Like just the presence of other tabs on the screen and like the reminder that there are other web pages out there um, <laughs> breaks my ability to focus. Like it, it has to just be one thing at a time. So are you lucky then in your uh, writing then that your recall capabilities is so high that you can just have the document open, you can recall the information that you previously read, or do you have a separate page that you then open up and look at when you require a, a recall of information? I, uh, I write without looking at anything else. And then uh, I'll go back and like fact check it to make sure that I did remember all of the details correctly. But no, I, I, don't, I don't write and like refer back to other things at the same time. Yeah. Well, um, I feel like everything you do, uh, you pull apart in a way that's really practical because, you know, there's some people that just use four syllable words or above and they sound really fancy and you're like, great, I can't do anything with that. I love that everything you do is, is quite practical, but I'm not sure that I can, <laughs> I can be uh, a, Nick, a Greg Nichols recall from what you've just told me because it sounds like you just, <laughs> you just do it because yeah. that's what you do. I'm good at so, it because I am. You're good at it because you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I was uh, I was fairly lucky in that regard. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I, I I wish I had tips, but I I honestly don't. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll wrap it up. No, <laughs> um, no. So so actually, actually, I, I guess I do have some tips. Okay. Um. So these aren't things that I have to do, but. Uh, I, I have done a fair amount of reading about um, about learning and about um, like like being able to recall information. Uh, so back in high school, I did I did test prep. That was like one of my one of my like side jobs. Um, and so I. <laughs> I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> like it's, I, I didn't have any like formal qualifications, but like I got good grades. Um, and so like my friend's parents were like, Hey, can you like tutor such and such for like standardized tests? And I was like, okay, sure. Like I'll give it a shot. Um, and if someone's like paying me to do something, I feel genuinely bad if I don't do a good job of it. And so I knew I had no expertise. So I was like, let's, let's try to like find some research about about learning and like how people learn and retain information um and so i'm not totally sure how you would implement this for just like reading fitness articles or research but one of the things that has the most research backing it up as far as like learning and and information retention goes is to be tested on it um so it's 
taking a test is, is actually like a pretty interesting process because it forces you to go back and like attempt to recall information. Um, if you, if you do remember it, then like being forced to like recall it under the stress of a test and put it down and the feedback of like the question being graded and you see you got it right. Like there's a lot of stuff going on, like reinforcing that information that you do remember. And then if you don't remember something, it um, like when you see a question that like asks you to recall information that's not in your head, that makes it very, very obvious that you don't know that information. Um, and so it, it reveals that gap in your knowledge. And also then if you want to go back and like study the, the material again, you then know like what shit you need to study. So one of the problems that people have when they're studying in school is like they take good notes and they just like read over their notes. And it's, it's kind of easy for your eyes to just be going over that sheet of paper with information written down. And you're like, I'm reading the words, so I know what it all means. Um, but then when you have a test in front of you uh, and it says like, hey, what is the answer to this question? And you're like, shit, that was in my notes, but it never actually clicked. That's because you weren't actually engaging with your notes that closely. Um, so yeah, taking tests is, is a really, really good way to cement what you already know and to show you what you need to focus on learning from there. Um, something else that I don't really understand the mechanism by which it works, but which seems to work pretty well, uh, is studying the same information under different contexts. So, you know, again, like if you're in college, you don't just like hang out in your dorm room and do all of your studying there. If you read your notes, like one time in a classroom, one time in the library, and one time in your room, you will, in general, retain the information better than if you did it three times in your room. Hmm. Um, I think the theory behind that is just that like, you, like when, when you learn information, like you're forming connections between things and physically being in different locations and have different, different things going on around you, that gives you more just like total context in which you are like coming in contact with and trying to encode the information. So it just like kind of forms more connections with like that little fact and like other random little shit. Um, so yeah, th those are, those are two things that people can do to, uh, to, to improve their ability to retain information. Like if there is something you really, really need to retain. Yeah, cool. Ooh. I like to, um, I'm a thorough note taker. <laughs> and sometimes I like when I'm studying to ask Dean to ask me questions from my notes, because mm -hmm. I find exactly as you said, I can understand the gaps in sure I've written it down, but I obviously haven't absorbed it because I can't, mm -hmm. I can't yeah. recite what I've written back to him. Um, mm -hmm. or even the gist of it. Yeah. And the, sec the second idea of that kind of sounds almost like the concept of when people are very good at name recall, they always associate a name with story. And a yeah. story would be likened to a different environment, uh, which is kind of an interesting one. And I'm for, I'm for sure like now getting flashbacks as you're saying, okay, I remember reading that in that place and remembering it there, but not over there. You know what? I used to have a friend at uni who uh, she had, do you know what? Um, what are those scented lip balms called again? Chat, not chapsticks. Anyways, it doesn't matter. She had these lip balms. One smelled like strawberry, one smelled like orange, one smelled like grape. And when she was studying biology, she would sniff her orange lip balm <laughs> yeah and then she would sniff paint notes and then when she was studying chemistry it would be grape or something like that so that when she would sit down to a biology exam 
she would sniff her orange um, like lip balm and it would bring back memories of her study that I don't know like if there's anything to it but she reckons that it helped. Mm. I mean, that, that's plausible at least. And, and then the last thing I'll say is um, one of like the last, the last thing I do to help me retain information is produce content. So one of, one of the other things that helps a lot with retention is, um, and, and I guess this is similar to test taking, like is basically regurgi regurgitating the information and like trying to teach it to someone else. Hmm. Um, so for me, like writing is learning as well. Um, so writing is, is very, it's interesting because like, if you have an idea in your mind, uh, you probably aren't, you probably aren't examining it, examining it super closely. Like you could think like, you know, why do I think this thing? And like one good reason might come up and a couple like, ah, oh, okay. Like, kind of decent reasons, whatever. But then if you're actually writing about it and you're trying to explain it to someone else, one, you just have to understand the idea pretty well to be able to explain it in text. Um, and second, if you need to try to, to explain to someone else why they should believe it as well, and you're going through the reasons why and like the supporting evidence, then ideas that like maybe you shouldn't have believed quite as strongly as you did become really obvious because you're like, okay, I'm trying to convince like a theoretical reader of this concept. But like when I read back through the draft of this article, I wouldn't fucking believe it. You know what I mean? Um, and so it, it, it helps you become aware of gaps in your own understanding. So you can then gather like more information, one to support the idea. Those are more connections you're making. So like you do remember. Um, and also by teaching it to someone else that helps with all right, listeners, we just had a little glitch in tech. So uh, we left you, but we're back. <laughs> it's fine. It happens. Thank you, Greg. Very patient. Yeah, it's fine. As far as I'm concerned, the internet is, uh, is essentially an act of God. I don't understand how it works. I assume it's, uh, it only cuts out because of, of the capriciousness of the old gods. <laughs> that must be it. Maybe it's the crimes that you and I commit that I'm not aware of that we do <laughs> yeah. as a couple <laughs> that are causing him to come down on us. Perhaps that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, so what we wanted to ask you was a bit about hypertrophy or hypertrophy, but maybe we'll take it from the angle of there's so much information out there, which is great, but the problem is there's so much shitty information as well that people are reading. So 17-year-old Greg, who didn't know a hell of a lot about muscle gain, what do you wish he knew or maybe what are the myths that you would like to bust for your 17 year old self about muscle gain? Let me think what I was doing at 17. Um, yeah. So when I was 17 as a young man, um, I believed if memory serves, two things. One was that you like you had to train to all the time if you wanted to grow, because that's what, uh, you know, that's what people in the muscle mag said. Um, that was still kind of like when, uh, when in HIT was like super, super popular. Um, and I also believed because I was, I was starting to, 
try to find scientific information at the time. And um, something that, that used to happen a lot and still happens more than it should, because the correct amount would be would be 0% of the time, is that people will look at like a proxy measure for something that 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 will necessarily lead to the outcome that like the proxy is somewhat correlated with. So um, for example, there's a lot of EMG studies looking at electrical activity in the muscle with different exercises or different loads, et cetera. Um, and EMG in most muscles and most exercises is higher with higher loads. So I thought that if you really wanted to grow, you needed to train at above like 80, 85% 1RM and go to failure or ideally past failure if you trust your partner and they can kind of like help you with the reps a little bit. But yeah, and it turns out that, um, <laughs> and also that like volume had to be super, super high. And so it turns out that like doing a shit ton of sets with like pretty heavy weight to and beyond failure, um, one like isn't that effective because you're just kind of like a little overtrained and like kind of feel shitty all the time. Uh, and two is like not a bad way to get hurt. <laughs> so, I mean, I did actually make pretty decent progress training that way, but uh, probably probably put a lot more mileage on my body than than would have been ideal. And, you know, probably could have made just as good of gains doing other things that are slightly more sane. Mm. It's funny that you say going beyond failure if you trust your partner, because there's a huge difference between a forced rep and a spot that I think people confuse. Yeah. Um, when I was working on my bench press, I was really particular on who I asked for a spot from. Because people think it means that they should grab the bar and guide the bar and kind of do a little bit of it for you. And, and yeah. I'm really firm on do not touch the bar until mm -hmm. it starts to come back down and crush the life out of me. Only mm -hmm. then may you think about touching the bar. But people go, oh, yeah, you want a spot? No worries. And they'll kind of like deadlift my bench press for me. And we really need to have a really firm distinction between forced reps and a spot. Because it's really annoying for the person that yeah. doesn't want forced reps. <laughs> So here, here's a hot take. Um, I think that, I think that that's like one of the, one of like the, the little talked about uh, aspects of like gender discrimination in the gym. Um, Cause I mean, like there's a lot of like sexist shit in the fitness industry, but I think that's one that like a lot of people don't realize that treatment of men and women tends to be pretty different because I mean, I, I trained in a shit ton of just like random gyms. And for the last couple of years, when I was in grad school, I was working out in like the student gym um, from time to time, like pretty fairly frequently. And dude, I can probably count on one hand in the last 10 years, how many spots like that I've gotten where I tell someone like, Hey, you know, don't touch the bar unless I miss. Uh, and if I need you to touch it, I'll tell you like, yeah. you know, I don't like sit them down and like, be like, you must, you must pay attention. If you touch it, I will be so mad. I'm just like, yeah, like if I need you to touch it, I'll say something. Otherwise don't. Um, and 99 or like 98% of the time I, I get the spot I want just from telling someone that yeah uh in with female lifters i talk to if they especially if they ask a dude to spot them 
if from the sound of it, they'll get a spot like what you're describing. So frustrating. At least a third of the time. Yep. And yeah, like I just don't fucking deal with that. Like I, I just tell them don't touch it and they don't touch it. Yeah. The hilarious thing is, is that Liz actually has that conversation. I have to have you a firm conversation. Yeah. Like I will sit them down and, and sometimes I just risk not getting a spot because I don't want them to fuck up my set. Mm. So I'm like, I would rather get my neck crushed. <laughs> but you know, one time this guy halfway through my set actually started force repping me. And I said like, you know, my back's all arched and I'm trying to hold my breath. I'm like, hands off the bar, hands off the bar. Mm-hmm. And he got the shits because I couldn't politely be like, hey, remember that talk that we had? Could you please? Like, I'm halfway through a motherfucking set. I can't yeah. talk too nicely. And so after the set was over, he like racked it back aggressively and just stormed off. I was like, look, man, we had, <laughs> we had the talk. I told you. And yeah. You did what I told you not to do. So the joys of a big box commercial. Gym. How am I going to record that in my program now, dickhead? Explain yeah. that to me. <laughs> yeah, like when it does happen, it's so frustrating. What what gets me the most, and this has only happened to me once. And when it when it happened, I was just floored because I did not it it it, it didn't even cross my mind that it could happen. Um I was, I was squatting and I had three spotters, um, you know, because like I, I had a, a reasonable amount of weight on the bar and I surveyed the gym and I was like, yeah, I, I don't necessarily trust anyone in here just to backspot me for this. Um, so I had three spotters and one of the fucking side spot and fair to them, I didn't have the talk with them. I thought a side spotter would be aware that like, if you touch one side of the bar, that affects the other side of the bar. Uh, So I I thought it would just be assumed that if I needed something, I'd say something. And otherwise you don't touch the bar. Um, But yeah, like (laughs) I go down on rep one, (laughs) start coming up, (laughs) start leading to the side. (laughs) Look, look over this motherfucker's trying to lift the bar up like one side of it. Uh, And like, I was fine, but I was scared because, um, like I, uh, I had a, a re- back injury a while back, and so um, like my right QL and like that area is like still, uh, I I'm not like perfectly confident in it, and it it gets like re irritated somewhat. Um, and it was like on it was the guy on my right side, so that's like kind of putting a stretch on like that side of my lower back. Uh, so you know, within like a tenth of a second, just like catastrophic thoughts go through my head of just like jesus christ like this is gonna re-injure everything it's gonna fuck everything up anyway turned out i was fine but that's uh that's probably my biggest spotter horror story oh Oh my god why would it even occur to someone to try to like homie spot with a side spot (laughs) uh i was i was so mad common sense is not that common great I had a client who nearly had to pull out of a contest prep for a bodybuilding show because a guy decided not only to spot him incorrectly in that he wanted to help. No, no, no. He decided to add more resistance by pushing down on the bench and he pushed down on one side and the dude popped his peck. Oh my God. What? Someone, and again, in a big gym in Sydney, he was like, dude, I've strained my peck this weekend. This fuckwit came over and pushed down on my weight because he thought it was too easy. What I'm the like, fuck? Force Holy shit. That's, I think we, that's ridiculous. <laughs> we need a handbook of like gym etiquette, like common sense mm-hmm. shit for people. So oh, this stuff doesn't happen. The stories could go on. Oh, 
But um, so so you you figured out as a seventeen year old that both volume and intensity and fatigue and all of the other variables do not go together harmoniously as one within yeah. a program. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you sit more now on that continuum of close proximity to failure versus set volumes versus intensity and so on for someone who's trying to chase hypertrophy? So I think. I think a few things. Uh, one, I, I think the intensity is is fairly exercise dependent, um, because like for for different exercises, there's just kind of like different rep ranges that make sense, right? So, um, if you're say, so on average, like looking at the literature and also from like coaching people, there there's a pretty wide range of like rep ranges where where people can grow pretty well on a per set basis. So. If it gets like way too light and they'd be doing like more than 40 or 50 reps per set, like, eh, yeah, it's, it's probably not great. And also like on a per set basis, you're, you're probably not growing that much from doing like heavy doubles, but as long as you're doing somewhere in the neighborhood of like five ish to like 25, 30 ish reps per set, like generally things are, are going to probably work out, but then you you know you need to discuss like what exercise you're doing so if you can grow equally well on a per set basis doing you know say sets of six to eight reps on the squat or sets of like 25 reps you kind you kind of have to hate yourself a little bit to go with the 25 rep option um because you know let's say you don't want volume to be crazy but you want to do five or six sets of squats you knock out one like legitimately hard set of 25 on squats and either you're like relatively untrained and it's not that much weight. So it's not that fatiguing and you're fine. But like, if you're reasonably well-trained, like that's going to fuck you up. Like 20 rep squats are legendarily hard for a reason. Um, so if you can get about the same thing out of sets of 25 and sets of like six to eight on a per set basis, I kind of think you'd be a little crazy to not go with the sets of six to eight on the flip side. Um, like, especially working with a lot of power lifters and especially like middle-aged power lifters, a lot of dudes have just kind of creaky elbows. And so if you have someone doing and again, you can get like similar growth on a per set basis out of sets of six to eight or sets of, you know, say like 12 to 15, give or take probably going to go with the sets of 12 to 15 just because you can decrease the load a little bit um take a little stress off of their triceps tendon and generally like their joints are going to be a little bit happier with that mm. um so yeah as far as like rep range and like intensity goes i i think that that's like on an exercise by exercise basis thing there's a, a wide range that can theoretically work but uh there's different ranges for different exercises that work in practice just because the demands of different exercises are different. Um, as far as proximity to failure goes, I think that like, I think that as long as you're getting fairly close to failure, you're probably fine. I don't, I don't think that most people need to train to failure most of the time. Um, but I, I also think that a lot of people don't, I think there's a disconnect with some people about how hard it still is to just go pretty close to failure. So again, if you're doing like heavy leg press and you're going two reps from failure, the last is still fucking hard. 
Because if you're going to true failure on any heavy exercise, like the last three reps are, are really, really, really difficult. Um, so I think a lot of people hear, oh, you don't have to go to failure all the time. And they like, oh, you can stop super far from failure and take, you know, take everything. And I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, as long as you're within two or three reps from failure, you're probably fine, but you probably don't need to go all the way to failure. Uh, and the, the last thing is volume. Um, I think that that's the one that's like the most highly individual of, of any of the major training variables. Um, so there's, uh, there's some, some research backing this up. Um, so we know of a particular gene called ACE. Um, it, it codes for an enzyme called angiotensin converting enzyme. Um, but there's, and I'm not totally sure why the ACE gene is, is associated with training responses, but it's, it's the one that has probably the most research on it. If you have one particular variant of the ACE allele, it seems that your response to training is fairly volume dependent in that you, uh, you know, you, you gain better with like moderate to higher volumes. And if you have the other variant of the allele, it seems that your results are more independent of volume. So like you can, you can get similar results with lower training volume. Hmm. Um, but I mean, I feel like you don't really even need research to back up that point. Like some people, you know, you see them needing considerable volumes to be able to get good results. Other folks, if they tried the same volume, like they'd overtrain, have very bad results, um, but they grow like a weed with lower to moderate volumes. So yeah, I, I think that for volume, like I would have advised 17-year-old Greg, like, hey, just experiment with yourself a little bit more. Um, and for the listeners, like experiment for yourself. And if you're coaching people, uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's bad to kind of start with like a range of volume that you've found to generally be successful for most people most of the time, but also not to be like too married to that. And I, I think I think as coaches, our 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 own experience centers our practice to some degree. And so if you find yourself, you know, troubleshooting programming for a client and you you wind up doing something with them that you know for sure wouldn't be great for you. Either like the loads are lower than you typically be using or the volume's lower, the volume's way higher, et cetera, et cetera. I think that there's, uh, I think there's a lot of value in, in getting enough experience that you can trust that troubleshooting process and see like, you know, hey, this program would be a dog shit program for me personally, but this client is getting great results from it and just go for it. And, and I think that, um, I think a problem that some coaches have is, especially with the volume variable, they, they have a decent idea of what appropriate volume is for them. And they'll be a little bit too hesitant to experiment with higher or lower volumes for their clients. Cause you know, if you're someone who responds really well to high volumes, like, you know, let's say you do 40 sets for arms per week. Uh, and, and you give someone a, a program like that and they're like, dude, like my elbows fucking hate me. My arms are sore all the time, but they're not growing. They'll be like, ah, oh, it's like just a fucking pussy. You need to want it more. Um, whereas like, you know, maybe something that's, that would be very inappropriate for you is the appropriate thing for your client. Um, so I, I think, I think that's something that most coaches pick up on eventually, but yeah, the, the volume variable is the one that I think varies the most person to person.
And just, just to qualify volume for you, you're specifically referring to set volume across the course of the week, not like, a, not like a load tonnage where someone's going to be like, I'm just going to do 10 sets of five kilos by a hundred reps to get more volume. Jump yeah, on. for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think it's cause you mentioned, you know, like experimenting and you were talking specifically with volume throughout the week. But I think it's also important that people have an understanding of the literature to know what to experiment with. And we shouldn't be experimenting on like, what is the exact supplement over the counter supplement stack that is going to give me the best gains? Because we know that <laughs> theoretically and in practice, that really it's right at the top of the pyramid of importance and isn't going to make that much, if any, of a difference at all. And your money's better spent on maybe a better gym membership or something like that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, not, not anymore, at least. Yeah. Back, back, in like, back in the early 90s, you could just like straight up buy steroids at GNC. Over the counter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, they, they wouldn't sell like vials of testosterone, but like they called them pro-hormones, but they weren't, they weren't pro-hormones. Pro-hormones are something like DHEA, which a uh, couple steps later is converted to testosterone. Um, they, they called them pro-hormones, but it was shit like super drawl. Um, mm. Which like isn't converted to anything. It's it's just a fucking oral steroid. Um, but yeah, and then they found out that like, oh, baseball players take steroids and it makes them good. This must this is a moral outrage. Um, but yeah, yeah, there, there used to be good supplements. On the, <laughs> the ones that work. Thanks, regulation. <laughs> yeah, but even stuff like knowing. Um, do you know who Ashley Bynes is? Or who's? Oh, I hope he does. Oh, anyways, just like shitty like. Nope. Camp. Oh, her name's Ashley Bynes. She was uh, quite a popular a Gold Coast, unfortunately, blonde chick that basically taught people how to walk with a booty band like a crab and uh, sold really bad programs. The, what's her name? Um, Martin McDonald actually kind of got a little bit popular slamming her and calling her Ashy Bins. <laughs> um, Are you was, checking her out on Instagram as we speak? Yeah. Is is it ashley.bynes no i think she may i don't know maybe it's changed no it's just a-s-h-y-b-i-n-e-s ashy binds b-i-n-e-s but anyways oh, ashy. okay yeah mm. there's even like kayla it signs and mm. anyways we're not slamming one particular person but rather i feel like there's people who don't have a basic understanding of the literature to know what we can totally poo poo and we don't need to experiment with because it's that's just not how hypertrophy works. Mm -hmm. um, and this is like, maybe you want to experiment between the leg press and lunges or between this rep range and that rep range, but we don't want to experiment between like monster walks and body weight hip thrusts for optimal hypertrophy because, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> so start from a place of a theoretical understanding and experiment from mm. there. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that, uh, I think that like the last variable that, that most people wouldn't think about because they don't quantify it. And, and I, I think that's like a big blind spot with a lot of people. Like you don't, uh, it's easy to look, it's easy to overlook something that you're not jotting down in your training journal, right? Like it's not something you're cataloging. And so it, it's not going to be top of mind. But I, I think another important variable for, for hypertrophy especially is just like exercise selection and how you're performing your reps. So um, like we, we know with 
a reasonable degree of confidence that like longer ranges of motion tend to produce better results than shorter ranges of motion do. And, and there's probably a limit to it. Like it's, it's probably not necessarily that you have to be training through a absolutely maximal range of motion, like with a deep, deep stretch on every rep for best hypertrophy results. Um, but it, it needs to be like reasonably close to full range of motion. Um, and I think that especially with, with young people who have like a little bit more ego in their training, it's easy to prioritize loading over rep execution and range of motion because you're quantifying weight on the bar. Like you're writing that down in your training journal and maybe start off doing solid reps on. And I think it's also maybe a little bit more challenging from a, for people with a hypertrophy focus than a strength focus because you're doing fewer exercises that are, that have like constrained and defined ranges of motion. Like if you're doing deadlifts, you're not going to do reps of deadlift where you stop above the floor. Like most people don't struggle with actually like lowering the bar to the, to the floor when they deadlift. Or like if you're a power lifter, you know, the bar touches your chest on the bench press. But you know, if, if maybe your main goal is hypertrophy and for pet growth, you're primarily doing like dumbbell press. It's not hard to like cut dumbbell press reps an inch higher or two centimeters higher, and then maybe like another centimeter higher. And then it's like, well, I'm still going to like elbows at 90 degrees, like it's fine. And then you're getting pretty close to elbows at 90 degrees. And then, you know, after a while, you're, you're doing dumbbell press with like 25 more kilos per hand, but you're doing like maybe 40% of the range of motion if you're being generous. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that, I think that that is, that's something just to keep in the back of your mind. Like it, if you're so focused on improving performance, workout to workout in like, you have to put more weight on the bar, you have to do more reps. Uh, if that comes at the expense of doing the lifts properly, you're ultimately not getting anything out of it. And I, I think everyone knows that, but it, it is still easy to, to kind of let rep execution slide in pursuit of metrics that are more quantifiable. Yeah, I think that's because that's where the importance is currently being uh, portrayed verbally by people is that load and progressive overload is a reference just to load. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's how you get growth. And they're not putting that big fucking asterisk that goes with every sentence of it depends. And that is, that's relevant to the same range of motion, same repetition mm -hmm. speed, exercise order and all that jazz. Cause yeah, we see that all the time. When I, whenever I see, um, individuals on programs who just consistently improve from week to week to week to week to week to week. I'm like, you either started exceptionally low on an RPE scale and have no idea what failure is, or you're just changing the way in which you lift that weight every week. And like you shouldn't be yeah. progressing linearly like that. It's just not mm, a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Sure. By the way, offshoot, I just found a long blonde hair hanging off your ear. Lucky me. Who is she? <laughs> <laughs> Another crime I've committed. <laughs> That's funny. Um, Greg, we'd like to wrap up with some um, less shit tips because the slogan of our podcast is how to be less shit. Okay. Um, and you can choose anything that we've talking, we've spoken about today, maybe even our last bit on what 17-year-old Greg would want to know. Mm -hmm. What are some tips that you could give our listeners on how to be less shit? Whew. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a... Uh... 
still young. I don't have that much life experience. I don't think I'm a particularly good person. So I, I don't know that I feel, feel great giving advice to people on how to be less shit. Does that mean um, you're inherently a bad person if you're not a good person or are you just a neutral human? I don't know. I don't, I don't have a great self-concept. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, what you're really uh, awesome at is okay. all things Here's lifting. So maybe we'll something. narrow it down to that. Here's something. Stay in touch with your grandparents. Uh, elderly people tend to be like pretty lonely and depressed. Um, but often they, they feel like they shouldn't impose like in, in the lives of other people. Like they know like, ah, oh, like my kids and grandkids, like they're super busy. I don't want to impose. Um, and yeah, a lot of old people are incredibly lonely and depressed. So, uh, yeah, give a call to your grandparents, see how they're doing. Well, Greg, mine are dead. So thanks for that tip. <laughs> I, I actually really appreciate that. My mom's dead and I make dead mom jokes on myself all the time. <laughs> and it, and it tends to make people really uncomfortable, but I, uh, I no. see where you're doing and I'm not going to bite. I, I bask in the un uncomfortableness. Liz I really thing. enjoy it. Liz thrives. <laughs> thrives for awkwardness. Yeah, the more awkward, the better. Well, usually the less shit tips are around like, you know, nutrition or hypertrophy, but I appreciate oh, that one. That's gotcha. good. No, but that's a good um, one. Let's see. Ooh, here's, here's a good one for, for nutrition and meal prep. Um, if you're listening to this and you eat kind of like the standard bodybuilding fare, like a lot of, lot of plain chicken breasts, something you can do to make them enormously better is to brine them beforehand. So um, making a brine is super easy. So if you have a scale, actually, no, I bet most people listening to this use the metric system easiest thing in the world. So uh, for every liter of water, you want, um, depending on how much salt you like in things, somewhere between like 15 and 30 grams of salt, uh, around 20 is probably pretty good to start. And uh, just, to, just to help with color a little bit, like this isn't going to affect macros, it's not going to really soak into the meat. Um, but you can add another like 20 grams of sugar or so per liter of water. That, that'll just help with like browning and caramelization. You want to forego the sugar because you don't trust it. That's fine. Just salt is fine. Um, so like 20, somewhere between 15 and 30 grams of salt per liter of water. Uh, mix up that brine. Make sure that all of the salt fully dissolves. Pour that over the meat. Uh, still raw. Let it go at least overnight. Uh, if, you think, if you think ahead of time and let it brine for a couple of days, that'll just make sure you get good salt penetration. Uh, and that's going to do a couple things for you. Independent of how you cook it, like you might cook it in a pan, you might bake it, you might grill it, it doesn't really matter. However you cook it, it is going to retain more liquid. So it's not going to be just dry, nasty chicken breasts. They are going to be more juicy still, just because you're increasing the, the salinity, like your, the, the tonicity of the meat itself. And so it's just naturally going to hold on to more water because it has more salt in it. Two is you're going to have some degree of salt throughout the meat. Like it makes sure that it's seasoned throughout um, and just that it has more flavor. So uh, yeah, if you're in, you know, this doesn't just apply to chicken. Like I single out chicken breast because it is generally like more dry and flavorless than most other cuts of meat. You can brine anything, but 
especially if you're cooking a lot of chicken breasts, brining it beforehand will completely change your experience of it and just make the, the food way more palatable. Might give that a go. You are a man who loves meat, Greg. I do. <laughs> How much would I have to pay you to turn vegan? Um, like until I die or for a period of time? Let's go with five years. That's not that long. Five That's years? Long yeah. What are you talking about, Dean? That's a long time. That's ages. Yeah, but not in the grand scheme of an entire life to still continue eating meat. Well, while you're living, <laughs> it feels like a long time. So, so here's what I'll say. You would need to pay me a lot to turn vegan. You wouldn't, you wouldn't need to pay me that much to go vegetarian. Um, I, I, I do like meat, but um, I probably don't eat as much meat as people would assume. Like I mostly eat meat with dinner and not really with, with breakfast and lunch. Um, I consume a lot of eggs and a lot of dairy though. And it would be, uh, it would be tough for me to cut both of those out of my life as well. What's your price for vegetarian then? Five years. Um, so talk about quantifying everything, right? <laughs> okay. So here, here's what I'll say. I'm not going to answer that question because that would give at least like some degree of a hint to like our household finances. And I'm pretty <laughs> private about that. Okay. Uh, but probably not as much as, as one would expect, especially, <laughs> especially if there was like kind of a caveat in there that like I could still have meat like four times a year or something like, you know, I'm, I'm from the South. I need to go to like a good barbecue during the summer. Uh, need to eat meat with like Thanksgiving. Um, Want to have like a big steak on my birthday. But, uh, you know, if I could have, if I could have meat like four times a year, uh, yeah, it wouldn't take much inducement at all for me to go vegetarian. That would make you a bad vegetarian. Dean and I go to this um, ramen <laughs> place down the road and it's a vegan ramen place. And mm -hmm. there's this like, what is it? I don't know. There's, it's definitely chicken thigh that they're saying is a vegan chicken alternative because mm. it has the skin on it. It tastes like chicken. It smells like chicken. It's even kind of semi-folded through like what you would see the varying colors of meat like in a thigh, like there's a lighter color and then a slightly more pink reddish tone. There is some good alternatives to me, they unless they're lying and it actually is chicken. Cause <laughs> that close that I think they might be. What a move would that be though? That would be incredible. <laughs> Wouldn't it? I know. Hilarious. Slightly. How, how do you, how do you guys feel about lab grown meat? Um, I'm down. I would do it. I would make the switch. Even if I probably had to, if I had to pay double, I would make the switch. Yeah, I think I like, agree. If it tasted as good, texturally was the same, the cost was reasonable, like, I don't mm -hmm. know why you wouldn't. I would pay double even if it didn't taste as good. Even if it was just, like, at least palatable, palatable, mm. palatable I would do it. I would do it. Yeah, that, that, that's about where I'm at as well. Um, I, I, do, I do actually have, like, some, some ethical conflicts about consuming meat. Um, and, and I feel better about it now because we like our, our finances aren't as tight. So like we can buy meat that I know like came from farms that treated the animals well. Um, and I, I still don't feel great about it. Cause like that is still like a, a sentient life that's being, being taken. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very much with you. Like if, if lab grown meat was even 
even comparable to farm-raised meat, um, yeah, I, I would I would be willing to spend quite a bit more to eat it. Yeah, mm. in a heartbeat. I'm not a vegan. I am a meat eater, but I'm a meat reducer for that reason. Mm-hmm. So I do do a lot of vegan protein alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't wait for lab-grown meat to come out because I really do enjoy eating meat mm. frequently. So Yeah. It's getting better and better. Like we have, uh, I'm going to say corn with a Q. Q-U-O-R-N. Right? And I think it's a British-made company, uh, British-owned company. That's actually pretty, like their mince is pretty good. Yeah, it's, and uh, it's uh, fungus. Micro-protein. Yeah, yeah. Micro, yeah, micro-protein from, uh, from mushroom. So I don't think this has been published yet, but I, I saw uh, like last year when, when like the academic conference circuit was going on, I saw some uh, some pictures being shared from like a presentation from a group that was looking at the muscle protein synthetic response to corn versus, I think it might have been whey. Uh, if it wasn't whey, it was like eggs or beef or something. It was it was a, a high quality animal protein source, um, and muscle protein synthesis after corn consumption was actually slightly higher than the animal protein, hey. which that's not necessarily the be all end all. And like I said, that was, that was apparently being presented at conferences last year and I still haven't seen the actual findings published yet. Um, so take that with a grain of salt, but I, I found it fairly interesting. Mm. Also, I fucking love mushrooms. Mm. Me too. Like I, I might give up meat before I'd give up mushrooms. <laughs> that is a big call. No, now, why would anyone give up mushrooms? I have no idea. I don't think there, there are any ethical issues with mushroom consumption, but just in general, like I love mushrooms. I eat so many mushrooms. You can get those big ass ones that can work as like a pizza base. The big field mushrooms. Yeah, mm. they're so good. They're they delicious. I was a once a, a mushroom denier. I didn't like them. Oh, I cooked him dinner once and I said, well, I'm putting mushrooms in this dinner. So if you don't want mushrooms, cook your own dinner, sweetheart. So he <laughs> ate it and he liked it. And ever since then, he's been a mushroom guy. What, what was your hang up with mushrooms? Uh, uh, when I was 17, I was in the UK for soccer and my homestay family cooked me a spaghetti bolognese. And I don't know if it was the meal that I had prior to that at the club or that, but both of my friend and I who were there on homestay vomited profusely. And gotcha. mushrooms, mushrooms came out. I, vis- I, I visually saw them. Yeah. I just had one of those moments, you know, like, and then for that, from then on, just texturally, they bothered me, but now I think they're delicious. So. I still no, can't smell rum for the same reason. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. I couldn't, I couldn't use ginger powder in cooking for a long time because I, I made a, like a, a gingerbread almond bread. Uh, with a lot of ginger powder in it and came down with the flu the same day I ate like half of it. Um, and just like the the taste and smell of like vomit mixed with ginger powder uh, made, made it impossible for me to even smell it for like five years. Oh my God, that's yeah. a long time. Are you past it now? Are you friends with ginger powder again? Yeah, yeah. That was, that was like 12 years ago. Okay, yeah. He's up in it. <laughs> um, now we ask our guests a question: um, if they like, what they have worth sharing to the audience. So something worth sharing: a book, a movie, a documentary, uh, maybe one of your articles. Hmm. Something of value. Something of value. Okay, so here is a very fitness, roughly adjacent book that I recommend to everyone that people should check out. 
you're going to hear the title and either you're going to think like, that sounds like the most boring book ever. I don't want to read it. Or that sounds like woo-woo nonsense. I don't want to read it. But trust me, it's incredible. Uh, it's by Nick Lane and it's called Power, Sex, Suicide, Mitochondria and the Meaning of Life. And it's, and it's a book about mitochondria and it is absolutely awesome. A book about mitochondria. That sounds awesome. Yep. Is it set up in like a really sciencey way or what's it like? Yeah. So um, the, the author, Nick Lane, he was a laboratory scientist. Like that was his first career before he became a, a pop science author. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it, it's, so, okay. The book starts with, okay, this is a book about mitochondria. Let's talk about why we haven't met aliens yet and goes from there. <laughs> I like it. When but, you say but in, in a very rigorous scientific way. Okay. So, so much so that the lay person would not know what the words mean because they're so sciencey. Oh, no, 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 no. So it's, it's, it's scientific in that it is, it is very rigorous. Like the, the dude's not just like a crackpot who's throwing random ideas out there, but it is written on a level that a lay audience should be able to understand. Cool. Hmm. I'm going to check it out. You know, I have a long list of books to get to right now that I've mm. sworn not to add to it because it's becoming a bit overwhelming, <laughs> but I think I'm going to add to it. <laughs> that sounds cool. It's on there. It's, it's like. a really good book. Um, now we've got three quick fire questions for you. The okay. first one being? Uh, I chose this one specifically for you, but it's one that we ask a lot of our friends. If you get only one meal, so that meal could be pizza or it could be steak and chips. But mm -hmm. one meal for every meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Hmm. Ooh, that's good. The meal that you're thinking of or the question? <laughs> the question. Because <laughs> my favorite meal is just a really, really good burger. But I don't know that I'd want to eat that for every meal. Probably chicken soup. Oh, Okay. That's interesting. I think I could eat a shit ton of chicken soup before I got tired of it. It's, it could be breakfasty too. Actually, I saw on your Instagram that you did congee recently, and that's kind of like mm -hmm. in that same world. Oh, yeah. bring, oh we were in Singapore recently where there was a lot of congee, and I couldn't bring myself to try oh, it. I loved it. it was Why? So uh, the idea freaks me out because to me, oats has to be sweet because they always put whey through it or berries or something. So the idea of having like savory oats, it just. Wait, it was oats? They do an oat version, but they're usually rice. Oh, oh yeah. I thought it was oats. I made a savory oats once. Well, I think I'm getting it wrong then. You know, it's <laughs> rice. It's like a rice puddingy, but savory and salty. And Yeah, well, I think I might have just had the wrong information. <laughs> there you go. I'll give it a go if we ever go to Singapore again, or just a restaurant that sells it. Yeah. Um, chicken soup. Chicken soup. I like with, it. With or without noodles? Probably without. Okay. If you could do any study and you didn't have to consider ethics, what would that study be? Ooh. Ooh, that's good. Okay, so I'm going to answer this question as if I also had no ethics. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so in the real world, even if I could get this by an IRB, I'm not a monster, so I wouldn't do it. Um, but if I was a monster, one of the, 
one of like the unanswered questions in exercise physiology that I think is practically answered, but you can't actually answer it in humans is does uh, muscle fiber hyperplasia occur? So not just an increase in fiber size, but also an increase in fiber number. I think that there's a very, very good chance it occurs and occurs to a non-negligible degree because essentially every animal model that has ever been used to try to study whether hyperplasia occurs, it does. Like we've seen it in mice, we've seen it in rats, we've seen it in cats, we've seen it in birds. There's not an animal model attempting to study hyperplasia I'm aware of where they were unable to induce it. There's also some indirect evidence that it occurs in humans. Um, so for example, you tend to use the tibialis anterior of your non-dominant leg more than your dominant leg. Because like if you're kicking something, that's the leg you're planting off of. And apparently your tibialis anterior is important for making sure that that plant is stable. Um, and in like, I believe car crash victims, they just like took off their tibialis, tibialis anteriors one time. Um, and the non-dominant tibialis anterior had, I think like 13% more muscle fibers than the dominant side, mm. which, you know, theoretically during the process of determining handedness, like maybe your body in some way, shape or form says like, oh, that's your non-dominant side. Let's just give you more muscle fibers on that side. But the more plausible explanation I think is just through just greater use over a lifespan. You just accumulate more fibers in your non-dominant tibialis anterior. So the, I, I think that there's a very, very good chance that, uh, that hyperplasia occurs in humans. But the reason we don't know yet is because um, like you have to kill the animal and like remove the muscle to actually be able to count fibers. So you can't just like take a biopsy and kind of look to see like a ratio between like number of fibers in the biopsy section you look you look at and whole muscle size and be like okay we know with a pretty high degree of confidence you have this number of muscle fibers in this muscle now we get that muscle bigger we take another biopsy it's like oh like the the increase in muscle size was disproportionate to the increase in fiber size therefore we know hyperplasia took place like there's not a stable enough relationship between fiber cross-sectional area and whole muscle cross-sectional area to, to make that inference. Mm. And so the way that hyperplasia is studied, and I realize I'm doing a very poor job of answering this as like a quick question. No, it's fine. It's interesting. But so the way they, they study hyperplasia essentially um, is like they need to kill the animal to do it. Like they might train one side of the body and then they, they euthanize the animal. Like let's say they're looking at the hamstrings. Then they cut the hamstrings off of the, the animal, bisect it, and just count every fiber one by one under the microscope. And like, that's what you have to do to assess hyperplasia. Um, so yeah, if I was a monster uh, and I wanted to identify if hyperplasia took place in humans, I, I need to kill some people. Um, but that would be the only way to answer that question. Or at least remove some of their limbs. Inter yeah, Inter yeah. Or, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess that's true. Um, and I guess the study could be done in an ethical fashion in a very select group of people. So, you know, if you say had a population of folks who, um, who lost a limb and you could like count the number of fibers in the limb when that limb was amputated, and then they get some sort of like manual labor job where they use the other limb a lot 
And then they also have to have that limb amputated at some point. And you could like compare fiber number like before and after manual labor, but like you're never going to be able to recruit people for that. Like you got to kill some people. <laughs> you will be able to get um, financial support though, likely from somebody who is providing prosthetics, although that may then subject you to some bias. Mm. That is true. Yeah. This is tricky. I'm interested in this study. I'm considering being a monster. It's an interesting study. <laughs> you could maybe try and do it to like a, a digit, but then you'd be looking at one specific like sort of flexor or extensor. Yeah, probably even then you still have to miss out. I mean, I, I I don't think the answer to that question is worth any human lives. Um, all I'm saying is that if you did want to answer it. Someone's That's what it. you'd have to do. Mm. Now, mm. our last question for you is a would you rather question. So we have a, um, a game here called Shitty Choices. Okay. And you have two choices. Would you rather, A, according to the card, spend the rest of your life wearing only a wedding dress? God, you'd look handsome in a wedding Pish. dress. Or, B, a mankini? Probably the wedding dress because I burn really easily. Very fair-skinned. <laughs> Imagine deadlifting in a mankini. The Ugh. wedgie would be extreme. <laughs> I reckon a, what would be worse, a deadlift or a squat? Oh. You know what? I can say from experience a squat is worse. God, I haven't worn a mankini squat. <laughs> <laughs> a G-string. Yeah. Because no one wants forebum. You know, where you see like the indents of your undies or like under your mm -hmm. tights. It's not fun. But also squatting in a G-string, not fun. So I'm just going to deal with the undie line next time. Um, cool. Wedding dress. I like it. Black, no. black one. <laughs> yeah, manly. Where can people find you if they wanted to check you out or your information? Uh, you can check out my free articles at strongerbyscience.com. If you want to check out the research review I put out every month along with Eric Trexler, Eric Helms, and Mike Zordos, that is called Mass Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. You can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. Uh, if you want to check out the podcast on which I am a temporary guest co-host, that is the Stronger by Science podcast, uh, you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found. Um, and if you want to follow me on social media, I'm probably most active on Instagram these days, and I am just at Greg Knuckles. Cool. Without Any the K. I, I don't know why, but I often write your name Knuckles with a K. I think it's just habit. Do you know, everyone does. Um, dude, I... I almost came to blows with uh, a woman at the DMV one time, like the, the license, the driver's license people. Um, so it was like when I was going to get my, my learner's permit and she was like, like I had, I had government paperwork fucking with me so I could get it. Um, and she was like, spell your name for me. And I was like, N-U-C-K. And she was like, she was like K-N-U. And I was like, nope, there's no K there. And like, Dude, I had my fucking birth certificate. I had my social security card. If there was anything that I was an expert about at 15 years old, it was how to spell my goddamn name. And she, she would not believe that I didn't have a K in the front of my name. Uh, we like argued about it for like five minutes. Um, anyway, yeah, so, so everyone spells my name wrong. Don't feel bad. Feel bad for my wife. Um, because her name is Lindsay, Lindsay Knuckles. It used to be Lindsay Rubel. Rubel was spelled completely phonetically. Um, but her name is spelled L-Y-N-D-S-E-Y. -E um, and everyone either tries to spell it L-I-N-D-S-E-Y or L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. Um, but yeah, so she, she had already been fighting her entire life with people who were trying to spell her first name wrong. 
but now she also has people trying to spell her last name wrong. She's she's doomed. It's a goddamn silent K, anyways. Who cares, people? She just needs to become Linda, maybe. Just just change her first name. But the weird thing is, is like I don't. No one. She wouldn't have argued that the last half of your name should have been spelled L E S. Either, right? Oh, K N U C. No, Wait, like pe- people are, people are fine with O L S. Yeah. Actually, no. I get a lot of L O S because people expect it to be L E S. Knuckles. We we. This is completely true. We considered just inventing a new last name for both of us when we got married. So, you know, not Ruble, not Knuckles, just something. Well, what else. would you have taken? I don't know. Uh, it doesn't really even matter. Uh, but yeah, we, we consider just like picking a completely phonetic last name just so mm. we wouldn't have to deal with it. Yeah. But then we were like, nah, like my family would get mad if we did that, so. Um, we're married and I have an Arabic last name because my dad's Lebanese and I just feel weird about taking his white boy last name because it doesn't feel um, I feel like a fraud if I have a white last name because I just I don't know I don't relate to it so I considered making up a new last name as well and I was always landing on rock star names like Danger or I don't know I I couldn't think of normal ones so I just stuck with my Arabic last name it's fine no, fair yeah. enough. It yeah. would have been weird for you to have changed just your last name <laughs> to something very random <laughs> at that moment. It's like, why choose now? <laughs> just want to be a rock star. Um, uh, okay, Greg. Well, thank you so much for your time and putting up with our tech issues. Ooh, yeah, thanks for having me. I blame the internet gods. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> are you genuinely, uh, really, genuinely a really patient guy, or are you just pretending to be patient for our sake? <laughs> I think I'm reasonably patient. I don't know. Like there, there, there's a small number of things that, that burn my fuse very quickly, but uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty easygoing, I think. Okay. Well, thank you for being easygoing through our tech issues today. We <laughs> and appreciate I, I it. wish we knew what those things were so we could have prodded you prior. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did not <laughs> Thanks, mate. All right, guys. Have a good one.